Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Mick Garris. Mick is a director, screenwriter, author, and sci-fi and horror icon. He's best known for working on Sleepwalkers, The Fly 2, Batteries Not Included, Hocus Pocus, Riding the Bullet, Psycho 4, Critters 2, The Mummy, Nightmare Cinema, Tales from the Crypt, Amazing Stories, Freddy's Nightmares, The Stand, Masters of Horror, and so many more. His new book, These Evil Things We Do, is out now. He's a frequent collaborator with Stephen King, has directed more Stephen King projects than anyone else, and created the Master of Horror series, as well as created and hosts his cult favorite interview series, Post Mortem. Mick, that is a long massively impressive list. I'm excited to get into your mind and figure out how you do all this crazy, amazing stuff. Well, I'm exhausted just listening to that introduction. (laughs) I'm reliving Um, (laughs) my entire life. I must be. (laughs) Writing bios is interesting, right? You have to consolidate down someone's work. I hope it did you justice. You hit all the high points (laughs) and even some of the low ones, but it's a life Um, loop. Yeah. Well, we're excited to talk to you before we dive into all that, because I want to obviously talk about the book, talk about your career. But my first question is always, where are you in the world? Imagine you're on the West Coast, but can you walk us through where you are right now? Yeah, I'm in LA, specifically Studio City, which is right in the heart of everything. So I'm one of those rare Angelinos who was born in Los Angeles. So there are not many of us. And tell us what's going on in LA right now. Obviously, you know, quarantine, coronavirus, the fires. There's been a lot going on this year. How has that affected you? And have you heard anything of things opening back up production-wise, or are you mostly just developing things? Well, you know, there have been so many fires here recently. The skies have been blocked out by clouds of smoke. Things have cleared up a lot in the last couple of days. We've also had outrageously high temperatures in the hundreds here. And with the coronavirus and everything, fortunately, as someone whose job primarily these days is writing, That part of my life hasn't changed much. I've got an office that I built next door to my house where I do that work. And I do my podcast there virtually the last six months. But it's definitely affected us. And the film industry in particular is just in a total nosedive, if not crash. There's some production going on in Canada again, but very little in the US. And so everybody's making great adjustments and and attempts to make it safe to be able to do what we used to do and do it well. But for now, I'm in writing mode. Before we get into talking about the book, talking about your career, I would love for you, you know, we just talked about your bio and all of those projects that you worked on. Could you give us maybe your career trajectory to this point? You know, did you always want to be a filmmaker? And how did you kind of build that relationship with Stephen King and develop all these projects and get to the point where you are now? Well, you know, I've always been interested in movies and TV. My grandmother used to call me Michael Allen TV because I watched it so much. But I wanted to be a cartoonist originally. My father was a trained art school artist. 
never was able to make a living at it. And I wanted to follow in his footsteps of being an unsuccessful artist. But at the age of 12, I started reading Ray Bradbury and a lot of other fantastic authors and authors of the fantastic. And I started writing. And my love of writing kind of overwhelmed my love of drawing. And I basically gave up drawing to do writing. I wrote a bunch of short stories and the like from 12. Then in high school, I started doing journalism, worked on the school paper, started writing for underground newspapers, which were a thing then, and interviewed people like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and a lot of dead rock stars before they were dead, obviously, and was a singer in a band. I thought I was going to be a rock and roll star. But the writing always had its grips in me, its talons dug deep in my flesh. And so I just devoted myself to writing and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then the first person to hire me as a writer was Steven Spielberg on Amazing Stories. After I'd been doing publicity on movies and was doing the making of the Goonies up in Astoria, Oregon, I was interviewing him for the documentary. And he asked me what I was doing and I told him about writing and said, oh, we're looking for writers for Amazing Stories, this new series I'm going to do. And so my big break was I was the first writer hired to write for Amazing Stories. They liked the first one I did, asked me to do more, and then I went on staff as a story editor. So when they were looking to do Sleepwalkers, they had people meet with the studio. I met with them, had a great meeting, and then they hired somebody else. That somebody else started changing King's screenplay a lot, and they ended up firing him and hiring me back. And so that was the beginning of the relationship with King, where we would speak on the phone. We'd talk about script changes that he would do and send over a fax, if you remember those clunky machines. And when Sleepwalkers was finally finished, he was really, really happy with it, had a great time with it. And then The Stand came along and he asked me if I would be interested in directing it. And yeah, I would. <laughs> so I had just been doing small scale things as a director. And then here's this 100 day shoot, eight hour, $28 million miniseries, 600 extras shooting all across the country. And it was just overwhelming and great. And he was on the set for a lot of that, for probably half of it. We established a great working relationship and friendship then, and he was a great supporter and cheerleader, was very happy. It turned out to be the highest rated miniseries in history, and even today is selling, you know, Blu-rays and doing really well, despite it being, you know, 35 years old. Anyway, <laughs> it's out there and still successful, and so we had a great working relationship, and we continued it on and on. It's been several years since we've collaborated, but I'm hoping we will again soon. And then those things led to other things. And here I look back and it's some 30 years later that I've had this career and it's kind of astonishing. You mentioned you wanted to be a rock star at one point, <laughs> but you actually are a rock star in the film and TV world. So is there an <laughs> essence of being a rock star that spans mediums? Do you have suggestions for those writers listening who want to be a proverbial rock star writer? Well, I don't know if I qualify for that because it's so behind the scenes, behind the camera, behind the keyboard. But what has really been good for me is, and it's something that's very well explained in Stephen King's book on writing, which I think is the best work on the process, the creative process, no matter what field or genre you're in, is that you write your first draft for yourself. Don't let people tell you how to do something, but don't resist input that is good. You know, if somebody has an idea that's better than yours, welcome and embrace it. 
if it works for your project. Don't let your ego get in the way of other good ideas or advice that might be helpful, but trust your instincts. You know, do something new, do something original, and know that whether it's in the book world where I'm not (laughs) a huge success by any means, or the film world, be original. Know that the people who are reading your material are reading 30 scripts or, you know, however many novels that they take home on the weekend. And it has to stand above those. So not only does your story have to be good, but the writing itself has to be entertaining. And you have to make them want to turn every page and feel like they're experiencing something not only good, but something that they want to see happen, something that entertains them, something that keeps them on the edge of their seat. And if you have a voice that is entertaining, and you know, being a rock star is nothing I ever was, but I was a lead singer in a band. We were funny. We were more than what people expected. It was, we were a progressive rock band, but also had a great deal of intelligence and humor, sense of humor that you don't always get from rock and roll, especially progressive rock. And be surprising, you know, don't be afraid of exposing yourself creatively. You know, I think one of the greatest things an author can be is fearless and not be afraid of the emotions he's been afraid to express personally can do it on the page or on the screen. So there's a long answer. <laughs> love that. I'd love to talk now about these evil things we do. Would you mind if I do my worst at reading a little description? Please. Here we go. These evil things we do. He's taken you to haunted hotels, into the lairs of dangerous creatures, and even to the end of the world. Now, master of horror, Mick Garris wants to invite you along on a journey into the realm of the most terrifying thing of all, man. From a plastic surgeon with a uniquely disturbing approach to his job, to a deranged child genius obsessed with his teacher, these evil things we do, the Mick Garris collection explores mankind's capacity for limitless evil, and how often that evil hides in plain sight. Previously only available in limited print runs, this collection brings together four of Garris's works for the first time in a single volume, along with a brand new novella, free, available exclusively here. So indulge your own inner monster and come along for these five fearsome tales of human wickedness. Just don't be tempted to commit any evil deeds of your own. I do have one more quote from Stephen King himself, since we were talking about Stephen King. Mick Garris is one hell of a filmmaker. He's elevated my work and that of everyone else he's worked with. Of course, that makes him a little psycho. How does it feel to receive such a warm quote from Stephen King? Obviously, he's been working with him for a while. Well, it's very humbling. I've gotten quotes from King and Clive Barker and Grady Hendrix and Joe Lansdale. No, these are people who are my idols, who are the people I read and aspire to. And it's humbling. And, you know, I do experience the sin of pride. I must admit that these people felt that my tales were worth the time and energy they spent in reading them. So it feels really great. And yet it makes me blush at the same time. Love that. Let's get into the book and how you kind of came about the idea of putting it together. So you've written books before, but tell us kind of what was the impetus for deciding to put this book together and move forward with it? Well, you know, in between film and television projects, which have so many compromises, you know, their budgets and egos and schedules and and censorship issues and advertisers and all of that, the idea of just sitting down and writing for the pure love of storytelling is something that I've done for years. My first book was published 20 years ago, and I've done several since. But this is a collection of the most recent ones. And, you know, when you're working in the horror realm as a filmmaker or 
as a novelist, mostly there's the supernatural plays a big part, or monsters and creatures, devilish things and ghosts and the like. And I wanted these stories to be very grounded. There's also something about the love of words and language. And my writing tends to be very playful with the use of vocabulary and to try and weave cinematic imagery with only the use of words. And so in these stories, there are ghosts, but everything is very grounded in a very real world. There are not latex monsters. There are not Lovecraftian creatures of the night. There's not a lot of witchcraft and that sort of thing, but they're things that come mostly from within our psyche. And one of the things that I like to do in telling fictional stories, which are internal as opposed to cinematic stories, which are external, is to go deep into maybe some of my own worst personality traits and maybe amplify them times a thousand, turn them up to 11 and, you know, give myself a Rorschach test. And, you know, every one of the characters that a writer writes is one side of that hexagon of himself or herself. And so to be able to plumb inside that and explore maybe some of the worst traits, that's the title of these evil things we do. Nobody tries to be evil, except maybe Donald Trump. But even wicked characters think they're doing what's best for themselves or those around them. And so there's a justification you want to go into. One of the stories, Ugly, is about a plastic surgeon who I find to be one of the most repellent human beings possible, and yet it's written in the first person, so it's from his perspective. The novella Free is written in the first perspective of a woman who's got twin five-year-olds who drive her crazy, and I wanted to feel her motivation about taking all of her life and leaving her family and going on the road to leave and you know, understand her from the inside out. These evil things we do are things that we feel guilt or shame about, but they're also amplified. You know, it's good people who make mistakes. All of us consider ourselves good people, and so do these characters. Although the character in Ugly is pretty hard to see in a good way in most ways. So schadenfreude is something you're happy to experience in that story, I think. As far as starting to put the book together, what were your first steps consolidating? I'm assuming you started with maybe more stories that you wanted to tell deciding on those stories and then also starting the outline process. Walk us through those early steps before you start. Well, each of these, they were written over the course of years. So they're all self-contained. Salome and Ugly and Snow Shadows and Tyler's Third Act, they were all published previously in individual volumes. So the first step really was writing this novella free. And just I thought that was going to be a novel at first. But then as it went along and it kind of formed itself, I realized that at the hundred or so page mark, that was where the story wanted to go and needed to end. So rather than publish it individually, I thought, let's take others with these themes, and most of which are California-based. A lot of my fiction has been Hollywood horror that's based in the film business, and a couple of these stories are, but two or three of them are not but they are based in LA. So the idea of linking them together and, and stories of people doing things that they regret, and if they don't, they will, seemed to me there was a theme between these stories that could be built. And the publisher, Fangoria, and now their imprint has sadly fallen apart at this point, a couple of weeks after the book came out, but Amazon is keeping it in print, in paperback and in Kindle. 
they actually had the idea of putting the novel with the four novellas because originally it was just going to be the four novellas under the title Awful People, which is intended as ironic because those awful people are us, the readers and the tellers of the stories. And then they felt that thematically, Salome went along very well with it, and would I be interested in putting those together? So that part was their idea. But mainly it was just finding thematically linked but unconnected stories. And in fact, stylistically, Snow Shadows is much more literary than the sort of wise-ass first-person telling that some of the other stories are. But still, they had the theme of awful people doing regretful things. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You've obviously written for film, TV, and we're talking now about writing a book. Can you walk us through the differences between writing those mediums? Obviously, I think a big one that we talk about a lot on the podcast is, you know, when you write a script, you're not supposed to talk about people's thoughts, right? You're supposed to just describe what happens. But from your perspective, what are the pros, cons, challenges of those different mediums, particularly in regards to this book? Well, the process for me is the same, but the approach is, is certainly different. You know, you're writing a blueprint. And yet, a lot of screenwriters overwrite description, which is really up to the director on those creative visual choices. And yet, you still have to write entertainingly enough so that when your descriptions of action are written into the script, they have to be understandable and make you want to read forward. So I try to write in a, an intelligent and literate manner, even though it's shorthanded for a screenplay, because you're talking about a minute a page. Every page of screenplay translates roughly to a minute of screen time. So if you're writing for television, you have to write in acts. If it's for commercial television, which means you build up to a subclimax, then you break for Pampers commercials, and you have to start all over again, ramping up the energy. It's something that a novelist might not think about. And writing a book, yes, you can go very internal, and that's one of the beauties of it, is you can go into the thought processes and motivations of the characters and go deep 
But I made an experiment. I did a film called Riding the Bullet that was based on a Stephen King short story that was only 30 pages long. And there's a lot of internal dialogue that goes on in there. And I thought, let's see if there's a way to cinematically externalize this internal process. So I created a doppelganger of the character. So you actually see the character talking to himself, played by the same actor, in crucial scenes, having what would be an internal dialogue with himself. But it's externalized by these two characters within the scene. But yeah, Richard Matheson told me something that was really profound for me, and that's that film is external and fiction is internal. And it's obvious, but there is a big difference. And you're writing a blueprint for 100 people to work off of, and they all have to be on the same literal page on a screenplay. Whereas in a book, you're only sharing it with your reader. And so it's much more intimate process, especially when you write as much as I do in the first person. So that's a way for me to open the door between me and the reader so that we become one. Back to the book, did you have an editor for this? Obviously, you were choosing the stories and writing free, but putting it together, how did that work? And were you working with a team? Was that all you? What did the actual kind of putting everything together in its final place look like? Yeah, it's the first time I really had an editor, Preston Fassel. And he edited the manuscript, but we also talked about order of stories. You know, one of the reasons I wanted free to be first was that it was the first and it was, in a way, the least gruesome of them. And it was kind of, you know, a, a first step into a pretty dark world. But yeah, there was a lot of input from Preston that was very helpful. Structurally, it didn't change much at all. Mostly it was in specific grammar and vocabulary things that we got into. There was very little structural work because four of the pieces had been published previously. But I went back in with Preston and made some things to bring it more up to date and tightened the focus a little bit. And, and then with Free, that was the one that, that really was, was brand new to it. And it, it felt important to start with that, especially because I was writing from the first person, someone who is so entirely unlike me as a crazed mother driven insane by the rigors of her family to the point of having to run away. You've written screenplays for film, TV, you're an author, and you've directed various different things that I imagine you were adapting from, some are original. Can you talk to us about what it means to be an auteur, someone who brings their own vision and feel and puts your own stamp onto things? Is there a through line, obviously horror and sci-fi, is there a through line or a feel, style that you would describe that someone is going to feel? And also into this book, are there things that you kind of brought from your experience that people can look forward to if they're fans? Well, the good news about being an auteur, and you're only really an auteur if you've earned the right to final cut, which is very rare among filmmakers. It's something I gave everybody on Masters of Horror, which never happens in television and rarely in film. But if you are the writer and the director, other than the studio and the network, you get final cut. And you make the creative decisions. You decide what lenses are used, what color patterns are used who the actors are, the casting process, bringing it all to life. And what I like to think my major approach is, is to try and visualize onto the screen what we were talking about, the internal aspects of the characters. 
you know, is a wide lens, an expansive lens and camera movement going through and changing perspective constantly, is that going to best propel the story, propel the scene? I want the humanity of the characters to be central to it, much like the reason Stephen King is so successful is because his characters are so rich and real and we identify with them. So even if you're not like these characters, I want you to be able to understand them from the inside out. But I also want to create a rich visual sense that has movement and propulsion and, you know, music that embraces it, heightens the emotional context rather than just masturbating with a camera. You know, a lot of filmmaking is based on what the coolest shots and the flashiest editing and, you know, the most wildly visual it can be. That's all great depending on what your subject matter is. But I try to fit the visuals and the sound the sound patterns, the, the music, the performances, the pacing to the individual story, and even more specifically, the individual scenes. But I would like my films to be very, very human and propulsive and visually elegant. Tell us about the future. Obviously, you've worked on a lot of projects. This book is out now. What can people look forward to? And will you be collaborating more with Stephen King? We hope so. I've written a pilot and a, and a series outline based on one of his stories. So far, we haven't been able to set it up. There's another pilot and series outline that I've written and created that is going out soon to the studios and networks. I resurrected a script that I wrote years ago when I was working with Spielberg that never got off the ground, but I had a new take for it that got me very excited. And it's a period story that takes place in the 1930s. So I just finished that rewrite. And then back to my old rock and roll days, we took a bunch of our best recordings, and this is from the 70s of our band, and added new vocals and new instrumentation and overlaid all this stuff. And we actually just put out our first album on CD, and it's on Apple Music and Spotify and everywhere you get your music streaming. The band is Horse Feathers, and the album is Symphony for a Million Mice. So that's out there. So it's, it's kind of amazing to do all this different media. And we're working on a sequel to Nightmare Cinema and Ryuhei Kitamura, who was one of the directors of Nightmare Cinema 1, and I are developing an animated series. So that's something I've never done before. So even in my gray years, I'm constantly keeping myself busy. Love that. Mick, are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions? You got it. First one. You once worked as a receptionist for George Lucas in 1977 for his then newly formed company, Star Wars Corporation. Is that true? It is true. I answered phones for Star Wars. (laughs) I'd pick up the phone and say, Star Wars? But the best part of that job was at the Oscars, the year of Star Wars, I operated R2-D2, delivering the sound editing award at the Oscars. The only time I've ever been to the Oscars in my tuxedo behind the curtain operating a remote control of R2-D2, the first and only time I've ever been to the Oscars. You mentioned earlier making of the Goonies. Can you tell us more about that? You were doing a behind the scenes of the Goonies at the time of making it. Can you walk us through what that looked like? Yeah, I was there for the first couple of days of shooting and I was doing specialized publicity for different studios. And I had done the making of Gremlins and they asked me to do the making of the Goonies. And the first day of shooting, I was up there in Astoria, Oregon, which at that time was the suicide capital of the United States. 
they had just shut down the canning industry there and it was very financially depressed. And so here are all these kids and making a Steven Spielberg adventure with director Richard Donner. And that's where I first, well, I'd interviewed Steven Spielberg on my old fantasy film festival series in 1980. And so that was where we first met. But here I was interviewing him for the making of the Goonies documentary in Astoria, Oregon. It was beautiful, but really grim as well and depressed. And I'm interviewing Stephen. And while we're setting up the lighting, he says, you must do a lot of these things. And I said, well, I'm trying to phase out of it because I'm trying to make a go of it as a writer. He said, oh, really? We're looking for writers for this new series. Like I said earlier, (laughs) amazing stories. So the most memorable part of the making of, aside from seeing all these young actors early in their careers, was getting (laughs) hired by Steven Spielberg as a screenwriter for Amazing Stories. I'm loving these bonus questions. (laughs) I'm really excited. You just mentioned what you could describe as getting your foot in the door, an early big break with, of all people, Steven Spielberg. For those writers listening who are looking to get their foot in the door, maybe they've got their own script, their story, their book, what would you suggest? How do people make those connections and get their stuff out there so they can kind of break through? Well, it's almost always through an agent. I'm sorry to say, I mean, for me, my agent I had who believed in me at the time and is now himself a very successful screenwriter who wrote Mulan with his wife. But my agent had submitted to them. And while we were up in Astoria, Oregon, and I was doing the making of The Goonies, his script coverage person had written coverage on a spec script that I had written. And the last line of it was, hire this man. So I came through it in that official way. But I don't know if Spielberg would have noticed that if he had not known me from my Z Channel show and had just been with me in this making of documentary. So while we were doing that, people within his company were recommending me as a writer. So suddenly he knew me in a couple of jobs and that led to that. That is a million to one opportunity that just happened to coincide and collide in the best possible way. But the best way is to go through an agent or a manager who has relationships with people and knows who might best be suited for your material or be looking for the kind of material you do. It's really difficult to just go through the transom and throw your script through and hope it lands on the right desk. Because like I said, every weekend they're taking home stacks of screenplays and manuscripts to read. And if you don't hook them in the first 10 or 20 pages, they throw it on the fire and go to the next one. So the best way is through representation, knowledgeable and canny representation. As far as representation, and just to kind of work backwards from that, you just described that you need an agent or manager, and they're a big part of getting your script out there. Do you have a suggestion for how those writers can try to get their work into the hands of an agent or a manager? Are there things that, I mean, obviously the internet is a big way to get your work out there. But from your experience, do you feel that there's any you know specific ways that people can get their work into the hands of agents and managers? Well, well I know obviously there's a catch-22 to getting representation if you don't already have representation. Yeah, it is really difficult. And the best way is to write the best thing possible. Now, I got my opportunity, you know, 35 years ago. So things are very different. There was not internet access at that time. And a lot of there are competitions that are worth entering because agents do pay attention to those. But there are books put out by the Writers Guild or lists put out by the Writers Guild of representatives who do accept unsolicited material. And that may be the best way. 
but they also hold meetings and things that are open that people can, you know, often they're paid for organizations that bring together a group of agents who are willing to look at that sort of thing. Conferences that are open to new young writers and the like. So it really is just convincing somebody who has the ability to get your material to someone who can make it or buy it, convincing them that you're worth it. They have to think that you're worth making money off of, or it's not worth it to them. So not only do you have to be good and you have to write material that makes them want to read it, but also material that they think there's an audience for. So specifically getting to them, I guess, through conferences and competitions and finding out who will accept unsolicited material is the best way I can think of. Love that. Going back to the bonus questions. Yes. You also appeared as a zombie in Michael Jackson's iconic thriller video. What's the story behind that? Well, it was originally going to be a video promoting the Adams Family sequel, Adams Family Values. And Stephen King wrote the original version and he recommended me. We were shooting the stand when Michael came to Stephen about doing a scary video called Is This Scary? And so King recommended me to Michael. And so I met with Michael and we hit it off great. Actually, that was Ghosts. So earlier on, sorry, that was how I directed the beginning of Ghosts, which ended up being directed by someone else, by Stan Winston. But Rick Baker and John Landis were two of my best friends. Rick Baker was the makeup effects guy who spearheaded the team of all these Hollywood makeup artists doing the zombies for Michael Jackson. And John Landis is the director. So John and Rick asked me and my wife, Cynthia, if we would be interested in being zombies for that. So that's how I first worked with Michael. And then years later, after the stand, just totally coincidentally, we did Is This Scary together. I have two more bonus questions left. The first one is, and this one's going to be tough because you've worked with a lot of people, Spielberg, Stephen King. But if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer <laughs> would you choose? Which restaurant and why? Okay, I'm vegan, so that's going to have an effect. <laughs> <laughs> but let's see, living or dead? Well, I have eaten with both Spielberg and King <laughs> and Clive Barker. So probably though I met him several times in my youth and interviewed him for my high school newspaper, probably the first guy who ever inspired me was Ray Bradbury. So it would be Ray Bradbury. And let's see, hmm, a fast food restaurant. Well, let's see, I know that they do a Beyond Burger at Carl's Jr., so it'd have to be there where I could go vegan. The last question, if you could choose, and you've given a lot of advice so far, so if you could choose one learning from your career, your entire career, to pass along to those writers listening, what would you choose? Basically, stand with your, believe in yourself and don't let anybody talk you out of it unless their arguments are valid, but trust your instinct. There are so many times as a new director, for example, where somebody would recommend shooting something a particular way. Well, it's because they're familiar with it and it's because it's worked before. But if you can approach something in a new way that gets people excited, that gets you excited, and feels original, go ahead and trust yourself and do it and don't let yourself be talked out of it. But on the other hand, accept advice from people who know better than you, but know the difference, whether they truly know better or are discouraging you because they don't want to try something different. Love that. My last and most important question, did you have fun today, Mick, with us on the show? Completely. 
We did too. This was so much fun. Especially given the extensive career you have, I feel like we just touched the tip of the iceberg. So maybe we should have you back on another time to just continue this and talk about all the other stuff we didn't even get into music and how that relates to writing. So maybe in the future, we can have you back on. But for now, These Evil Things We Do is out now. If you're listening, if you're a fan of Mick, if you just heard him for the first time here, if you found this interview interesting, please check out the book. And if you're interested, please buy it. Thank you so much, Mick. Thank you, Corey. uh, Did you want to plug anything else or website, social media, Twitter handle, anything at all? Well, the book, the CD, Horse Feathers, Symphony for a Million Mice. My first audio book is out of stories from my first book, A Life in the Cinema. That's also available on Amazon and other places. And, you know, those are the plugs. But I'm really here just to have a conversation with you, Court. Thanks. Love it. We appreciate it. And I definitely think there was tons of gems and they mean a lot coming from you, Mick. So thank you again so much. It's truly an honor for us. My pleasure. Take care, Court. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.